0: says the battle became fierce against Saul the archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers and then Saul said to his armor bearer draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me but his armor bearer would not for he was greatly afraid therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. And, Father, we just humbly pause and ask, Lord, for the grace and help of your Holy Spirit as always to hear what the voice of your Spirit would say through the Word of God that's written and recorded for us. And, Lord, particularly this morning, we just pray for a... Special measure of your grace, Lord, as we discuss something sensitive and very difficult, we pray that hearing the truth, that the truth would set us free and liberate us and help us to walk in consistency with what you intend for our lives. And we ask for your grace and help and such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Whenever something in our body hurts, it's normal to try and to search for a way to get relief. It's completely natural when you have a problem to desire and seek for a solution to that problem. Pain and problems have a way of kind of strongly influencing us as people to search out for relief to look for some resolution, to be liberated or freed from struggle. That's totally natural. Yet it's also equally important to find the right solution, to find the correct solution when we're looking for relief from our struggle. And I want to say that ending your own life may be perceived as a solution, but I want you to understand and know God's love for you would say it's never the right solution. It's not the correct solution. It may be a solution, but it's never the right solution. See, the great tragedy of killing oneself is that committing suicide is really a permanent solution to a temporary struggle and problem that is going on within our lives that we may be enduring. And this passage reveals that reality. Here in the Bible, we have the first of a few records of those who ended their own lives found actually in God's word. We have here Saul and his armor bearer in a matter of a short few verses, each ending their own lives as a way to find escape, as a way to find relief from what they themselves individually were struggling with and dealing with and and the pain and the problems they're individually trying to work through. The background, which helps us a bit, For a few years prior to this time, Saul, we know, had been severely battling and struggling mentally and emotionally. We find Saul in the text prior to this, many chapters before, Saul's battling severely with feelings of anxiety. He's wrestling with strong bouts of depression, heavy mood swings in his life. And sadly, Saul also didn't make the best of choices on top of that. As a way of trying to cope with his anxiety and severe depression and the mood swings and struggles he was dealing with mentally and emotionally, and that just unfortunately further inflamed the struggles in Saul's mind, which then took Saul to a very, very dark place inside of his own life. And in chapter 31, as we come to this section now, we find Saul and his army going out and engaging in a battle against the Philistines. And in the midst of that battle, they suffer great defeat, and Saul experiences personal loss, including even the death of his sons in the midst of the conflict. We read there in verse 3, if you look at it with me, it says the battle became fierce against Saul and the archers hit him and he was now severely wounded by the archer so Saul's already battling mentally emotionally now he's battling more things he's fighting through the battle becomes intensely difficult for him circumstantially and then add into that impact he ends up suffering a severe injury himself so now you have Saul with a background of years of struggle mentally of depression and anxiety and dark thoughts and just, you know, real struggles within his emotions and his thinking, and now on top of that, you have Saul enduring a very severe disappointment in his life a tremendous time of discouragement and despondency, and now he's been personally wounded in a very strong way, and it seems the cumulative effect of all of those things now brings Saul to this place here where he becomes so despondent and so hopeless in the way that he is thinking and feeling that we see here he decides to give up the battle on life altogether. He decides to give up the battle to continue surviving. Verse 4 tells us there that Saul turns to his armor bearer next to him and says, draw your sword, thrust me through, lest these uncircumcised men, the Philistines, he said, would come and thrust me through and abuse me. That is that they would disgrace me by finishing me off in my weakened state. I'm vulnerable and I don't want them to be the one to kill me. But his armor bearer, notice verse 4, He wouldn't do it, for he was afraid. The idea is the armor bearer sensed some reality of the sacredness of human life. He was terrified of the thought of ending someone else's life. And very sadly, we read the end of verse 4, Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. That is, Saul utilizes his own weapon, and using his weapon, he chooses to end his own life. The personal struggles and pain are becoming overwhelming and in that moment because his armor bearer would not end his life and would not assist him in the process he kills himself and sadly as you can see what's happening in the text he kills himself right in front of his armor bearer now I have to say that's probably a pretty traumatizing experience that the armor bearer just had to witness to see someone end their own life now verse 5 says when his armor bearer saw <clears throat> excuse me that Saul was dead he also fell on his sword and died with him now we know nothing of the armor bearer in his background we don't know anything about his experiences very different to Saul leading up to this point yet seeing Saul end his own life seems to trigger with temptation and stumble, the armor bearer who experiences this traumatic thing, that the best solution in light of this would now be just to end his own life also. Seeing Saul put an end to his life, it almost seems kind of emboldens or makes it seem more normal that if Saul wasn't going to endure to the end, well, then maybe that encouraged the young man to kind of just give up on going forward himself. And in some ways, he found himself reasoning, rather than trying to figure things out, I'm just going to check out too, because now I've got my own set of problems and difficulties. And he makes this unfortunate, impulsive decision to commit suicide, just like Saul does here. You almost have to wonder if he's thinking, well, since Saul ended his life, and now I've got a whole set of problems in my life, I guess it's justified to just end my life too, because he did it. And because he did it, perhaps somehow it created a trigger to think somehow it would be the best thing. And I want to say this morning, my great concern, my great concern is that it seems this heartbreaking pattern is gaining momentum in our modern culture, where people are seeing others end their lives and somehow finding justification to end their own lives. Look, pain and problems in life is a very real thing. And dealing with pain and hardship and problems can be very overwhelming. Maybe it's some traumatic or hurtful experience that happened in your past. Maybe there's been some lifelong struggle that you have been trying to navigate through the difficulty of, or maybe just something you're dealing with presently can be very hard and just absolutely painful and overwhelming. And it may at times drive us to a place that can kind of be very dark. Where our thoughts go to places we never thought they would and we start to feel lonely and depressed within and despite the outward image, we can all sometimes try and keep as human beings or we want to appear everything's normal and outwardly we kind of smile and make it seem that we're okay. It is possible even at a very young age. For people, though smiling outwardly or pretending with an image outwardly, become so emotionally distraught inside to struggle with things like depression and anxiety and fears and guilt and rejection and loneliness and emptiness that it can lead you to a place where you actually begin in utter hopelessness to actually start to lose the desire to keep living to actually lose desire to want to carry on. Psalm 143, verse 4 says, Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, and my heart within me is distressed. I want you to listen to a quote, if you would, from a man that was dealing with very painful and hard experiences in a number of different ways. Listen to his words. Why didn't I just die at birth? Why should life be given to those in misery? They long for death and it won't come. Why is life given to those with no future? Those destined by God to live in distress. What I've always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Instead, only trouble comes. Guess who wrote those words? Job. A good and a godly man who God bragged about as someone who was in right relationship with him and yet notice enduring severe hardship God records those thoughts that were in Job's mind those feelings very real that he was struggling with in despondency in the midst of a very dark and difficult hour the reality is for any person subjected to hard times and very difficult circumstances to pain and traumatic experiences, inward hurt and depression and hopelessness can start to make us as human beings sometimes almost begin in hopelessness to kind of feel like our life is spiraling downward and almost kind of just going out of control in a given moment. And the unfortunate thing is it then becomes very common, a temptation to think that ending your life is the only way to kind of regain control. And sometimes when a person is in that place, they begin to feel everything is spiraling out of control and I don't know how to regain control and the only way they think they can take control is to just put an end to their life, is to somehow look for that as a way to escape and find relief that they're longing for, and we know this is true because even studies and statistics prove those problems that human beings are dealing with. Reports published show that on average, there are about 129 suicide deaths per day. Per day, 129. In the last 15 to 20 years, the suicide rate has increased by a little over 30% in the last 15 to 20 years, across all demographics. Suicide, listen to this, suicide is now the second leading cause of death among 10 to 34-year-olds, young people, as early as 10 years old. 10 to 34-year-olds, the second leading reason why they're dying now is because they're choosing to end their own lives. Among deaths for teenagers and young adults... Suicide accounts for 20% of all of those deaths. That's one in five. That means every one in five teenagers, college-age, young adult people who are dying are dying because they're choosing to put an end to their own life. We know as well in 2017, two years ago, this statistic, twice as many deaths happened by suicide than by homicide two times as many. During the course of a year, studies show it's estimated that 8.3 million people report having suicidal thoughts. And that's just those who report outwardly having suicidal thoughts. You know, I think we should envision suicide kind of like a brutal thief that wants to just go around robbing people of life. It's kind of like this you know, terroristic threat in the unseen realm that's kind of just attacking people with suicidal thoughts, wanting to convince them to kill themselves, to rob the purpose, and to take away from them and ambush from them the good things that are intended for their lives. So the question becomes, how do you defeat that internal terroristic attack, if you would, of suicidal thoughts that go on inside of all of, let's be honest, our lives maybe from time to time? I personally don't think that ignoring an issue ever solves anything. Ignoring something does nothing but just delay facing it and then the problem just gets worse and then it resurfaces and then it takes out a few more victims. So in light of that, what I want to do in the balance of our time this morning is suggest three things at least, certainly not exhausted, but three things that we can utilize to fight against or defeat the ambush of suicidal thoughts or tendencies. The first thing I would say this is, number one, we need to realize and remember that you are not alone when you're struggling in life. That may sound overly simplistic, but let me say it again. We have to realize and you have to remember that you are not alone when you find yourself struggling in life as it pertains to your own pain or hard circumstances or struggles that you're going through as it pertains to times where maybe there may be bouts of anxiety going on inside, or bouts of depression or deep discouragement, understand to a various degree, every human being is navigating all of those same challenges. Everybody to some degree has their fair share of hardship in this life. Everybody at times finds themselves getting discouraged or anxious or fearful or feeling depressed. Each of us will endure forms of that. That's part of human existence on this earth. That's a part of what it means to journey through life. And sometimes human nature goes through seasons of these things. And sometimes the struggle can become so severe and so bad from time to time that we can truly start to find ourselves feeling like life is out of control and we start to have thoughts and feelings that we want to just escape, that we want relief from it, that we just want deliverance. And I want to say this morning, that is not something to feel ashamed about. That's not something to think that that makes you weak or abnormal or that somehow you're a failure because you're struggling with those kind of things. I want to say the opposite. It means you're human. It means you're normal because to some degree, everybody struggles from time to time. Everybody wrestles and battles with things externally and internally. God even documents it purposely. Look, life is hard, right? Life is hard, man. You can do everything what's good and right, and life is still hard. We live in a world that has fallen and under the curse of sin, and because of that, we're constantly exposed to pain in different forms, to hardships, to sickness, to disease, to people dying that we love and care about, uh, to times where we're hurt and disappointed, human suffering is an inescapable part of human existence. Correct? Human suffering is an inescapable part of human existence. It is somewhat naive to think that we're supposed to exist and never have suffering in our lives. That is a part of human existence for every single human being who's living anywhere on this planet in any time in history. It's a part of our human existence. It's not an enjoyable thing, but it's a part of what we all endure through. And it's impossible to go through life and not be exposed to hardship or challenges. It's impossible, I want to say, even to go through life and not sometimes have your own struggles with your thoughts and feelings and emotions with anxiety or depression or just feeling despondent and wanting to give up. And even, let me just say, even start to become a little bit unstable mentally or emotionally. Psalm 69 tells us this. The psalmist says, expressing his feelings in the moment, for the waters have come up to my neck and I sink in deep mire. Here the psalmist is saying, the psalmist is saying, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm sinking, drowning in quicksand and I don't know how to pull myself out of it. I can't even see how I could get out of this. I'm just sinking and there's no way possible even to get out of it. That's how he was feeling. Even one of the godliest men in history in the New Testament recorded his own personal hardships in life and the feelings that he battled with as well. Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, for we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships that we suffered. For we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Another translation of that same verse, Paul says, I think you ought to know about the trouble we went through. We were crushed and completely overwhelmed, and we thought we would never live through it. Boy, if you were honest, can't you kind of relate a little bit to some of those sentiments that Paul's expressing there? in our own lives at times. And notice Paul didn't feel ashamed and he didn't try and hide his struggle. He didn't try and clean things up on the outside. He didn't isolate himself and retreat into a dark and lonely place when he was suffering. He didn't try and hide what was going on and not admit it. Instead, he understood and accepted hardships are a part of all of our lives. So he says, we want you to know so that you don't feel abnormal there to those he was writing to. The hardships that we went through, that at a point we felt completely overwhelmed. We didn't think we were going to make it. We were so crushed under the burden of what we were dealing with in our lives at that time. And he openly admits how feeling in hard times was very difficult. His emotions and thoughts were in just a really dark place. And, and And he says, look, I want you to know this. And what's Paul doing? He's communicating about it. He's communicating about what's going on which becomes a very liberating thing when you communicated about it because you don't allow, in a sense, yourself to come in a place of isolation which just becomes an area where you kind of then almost become incarcerated in your own soul because opening up and communicating about it and dialoguing helps in some way, in a very therapeutic way, to just begin to process and realize, okay, I, I'm going through this. Does anybody else go through this? And Paul just begins to talk about it. We have to realize we are actually quite normal when we wrestle with such things. And I know the coping process can be very hard at times, depending upon what's going on and what the exact circumstances are. But the struggle is universal that happens on the inside. Even the struggle when sometimes on occasions we may have the severest of thoughts that would make us even want to think about or contemplate putting an end to our own life for some form of relief where a person begins to think maybe it might just be easier to just end my life maybe it might just be the the best form of relief to just escape this misery by ending my life early and then the thoughts that go along with that well the world and people would just be better without me or nobody would really miss me, or I wouldn't be a burden on all these other people, and all the dark thoughts that go along with that. Look, even in God's word, it is not silent about people who were driven to commit suicide. I find that insightful, because God doesn't try and cover up and hide the reality that this has been something going on throughout all of human history. God could have just polished up the word of God and said, well, I mean, let's not talk about that. It's a very sensitive subject, and we don't want to give the impression that God doesn't do any of that. God says, look, life is real, and it's raw, and here it is. And we find records throughout the word of God of those who unfortunately fell prey to this temptation and made the wrong decision to end their own lives. And I have to think that part of the reason we have these examples recorded in Scripture is to help us identify what contributed to the pathway that led to those people ending their own lives. So that maybe we might understand ourselves and avoid the same tragedy. So, for example, here in our section in 1 Samuel. Uh, Chapter 31, King Saul ends his own life using his own weapon. And what do we know about King Saul? Well, King Saul, at the start of his life, he was a very gifted individual, had great natural charisma. He was a man of power, a man who acquired great wealth and success. He became quite popular, you might say famous. And he was riding high on the top of the world. He had celebrity status and everything going for him. And yet he became, unfortunately, a little self-absorbed. And he started to make some poor choices in his life that led to his life kind of, uh, you know, involving some unhealthy practices. He started being hurtful towards others. And the end result of that is his world kind of started unraveling at the seams. And then the next thing we know, we see Saul starting to become very insecure and paranoid. He's dealing with bouts of depression. And he starts kind of driving people out of his life and people start retracting and pulling away from him and now he's feeling abandoned and alone and living in loneliness and battling guilt and regret over things that he did and he feels rejected and worthless and ultimately he comes to a place of vulnerability in his life where the battle becomes just too much and in a weakened state he succumbs to his dark thoughts and he ends up just putting an end to his own life his armor bearer who we read about here in verse 5 confused and stumbled also ends his life it says that he also verse 5 fell on his sword and died together with Saul again we know nothing of the armor bearer but one thing we do know is the armor bearer sees the suicide of someone else that he knows and somehow he feels justified to take the same course That as someone he knows and certainly probably cared about, ends their life and the hopelessness of losing one, his suicide, you could say, is directly linked to witnessing, to being aware of the suicide of another person. We know of another record in 2 Samuel 17 of a man named Ahithophel who ends his life. It says Ahithophel went to his own house and hanged himself. In Ahithophel's situation, he was dealing with hard things that accompany the breakdown and the fracturing of a family and all the pain and problems that go through cruel and selfish things that even families and friends can do to one another, the betrayal, the forsaking, the rejection, the pain, the hardship of family breakdown, and ultimately that pain and the splintering of relationships and breaking apart becomes so painful and overwhelming for Ahithophel that ultimately, to seek escape from the family fiasco, he just ends his own life. We have another record as well in First Kings 16, verse 18, of a man named Zimri who commits suicide. And Zimri's situation that led up to him ending his own life, Zimri had made some really poor choices in his life. And because of the poor choices that he made, there were some really heavy and severe consequences that were going to come that he was going to have to face because of some bad choices that he made. And unfortunately, rather than face the consequences and humble himself and figure it out and work his way through it, instead, Zimri, in fear, just overreacts and he just ends his own life rather than figuring out how to work through the remainder of it. The one New Testament example we have of someone ending their life, of course, is Matthew chapter 27, there in verses 3 to 5, where Judas Iscariot, we're told, hangs himself as well. And of course, most of us know the story of Judas. He had lived a double life. He was pretending things outwardly, but there was a lot of dark things going on in his private life that no one else knew about. And as he's keeping up this double image and doing dark things in his private life and pulling back from his friends and ultimately betrays the Lord and the guilt and the remorse and all the compounding effects of those things, ultimately he's plagued with such overwhelming feelings. And then as he's cast aside by who he thought were friends that didn't care about him at all, it tells us that Judas himself, the culmination of that, thought his only option was to end his own life. And Judas hanged himself. Look, it's interesting, overwhelming symptoms that ultimately drove each different person that we have in the Bible to end their own life were different in each scenario. Everybody's situation was a little bit unique, but the one thing that's universal is they were all struggling. Struggle was universal to everybody. And struggle is universal to all of us in our humanity. The danger is to think that somehow that's abnormal and then respond wrongly. Let me just say to you this morning, even Jesus during his earthly life, listen, Jesus chose to experience personal hardship as a human being. Think about that. He's God. He came into the world. Jesus could have said, look, I'm God. The one thing I'm not doing while I'm on earth is struggling. He could have kept himself immune from every form of pain and hardship and difficulty, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus actually chose as a man in his humanity to actually experience personal hardship. It says he himself was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, familiar with grief. We know as well of the entirety of Jesus' life. Jesus experienced rejection, loneliness, family problems, the premature death of losing a parent, mistreatment, bullying, abandonment of his closest friends, physical abuse, and mental torment and anguish. It says in Mark 14 of Jesus that he was troubled and deeply distressed and he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Expressing his feelings of being overwhelmed by what he was going through. The point is realize and remember you are not alone when you struggle in your humanity. It's a normal process. The second thing I would bring to your attention is this, is recognize who and what is really behind self-destructive thoughts. Recognize and realize who and what is really behind self-destructive thoughts that enter into our minds. If you would, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3, to the left in your Bible, right to the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 3, And as you turn to Genesis chapter 3, remember, God creates the heavens and the earth, right? God creates man, and it tells us in Genesis chapter 2, prior to this time, that the Lord God, it says, formed man out of the dust of the ground, and it says, God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That is, God is the giver of life. He gives the gift of life to be experienced in its fullness. And then it says as well, back in chapter 2, the Lord God then took the man who he had given life to, put him in a paradise garden to tend and to keep it, and the Lord commanded him, gave him a, a command with a prohibition, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, pay attention, God said, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gave him one prohibition, Adam, I love you, I want a relationship with you, and because I want a relationship, I have to give you freedom of choice. If not, it's not a relationship, you're robotically being controlled. But Adam, I love you. So Adam, you can enjoy everything you want, but this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, please, my one prohibition, don't eat of it, and then God attaches a consequence, for the day you eat of it, if you disobey me, he says, the consequence is you'll actually die, it will kill you. It will end your life and bring death and the experience of death into your life. Well, listen, look at Genesis chapter 3, if you would, the first few verses. Here's the first time the devil shows up on the scene in Scripture and his first spoken words. What does the devil do? Genesis 3, the serpent said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God has said you shall not eat of it nor shall you touch it lest you die and the serpent the devil said to the woman you will not surely die let me take you the bottom line here of why I brought you to this passage the bottom line is this what is the devil in his lying words and deceptive thoughts trying to to mentally persuade Eve to do. He's trying to mentally persuade Eve, if you would, in essence, to forsake God's plan and to do what will destroy her own life. Because didn't God say, in the day you do that, you'll die? And now what is the devil trying to convince her to do? To do that which would destroy her own life. You might fairly say here, the devil is is subtly convincing her to do something that would actually end her own life, planning thoughts in her reasoning that are, you might say, somewhat sabotaging herself and somewhat suicidal, which would bring an end to her own life. The devil deceived her with destructive ideas in his lying speech. And I want to submit to you this morning, that has always been the case for all of human history. For all of human history, there is an unseen spiritual enemy with a very loud lying voice who is seeking to do what he can very subtly under the radar to persuade people to live destructively, to prompt and to encourage humanity to destroy their own lives. Even in suicidal attempts, it is the lying voice of the devil himself that is seeking to persuade people to do the exact opposite of what God's heart is, which is to give people life and to experience life. He manipulates the natural emotions and thoughts, supplying destructive ideas, and the devil persuades very subtly people in their vulnerability and their weakness and their hardest moments to actually suggest the idea that killing themselves would be the best solution And I think he does it rather well all under the subtle disguise that what it all is about, it's all just mental illness. And I want to say to you this morning, the truth is, it is also greatly about spiritual attack. And there is a huge underlying spiritual element that exists to what is going on that a lot of times gets dismissed and ignored altogether. Remember Jesus, when he was speaking about the devil himself in John chapter 8, Jesus said this of the devil, He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Jesus said as well in John chapter 10, I have come to give life and that more abundantly. Then he said, Satan, as the great thief, wants to rob Kill and destroy. That's the agenda of our spiritual enemy, the devil. In Mark chapter 5, you see there a man who's under the influence of demonic voices and demonic spirits that are influencing this poor man's life. And in that story, as the man is under the influence of demonic spirits and voices, it results in him doing self-destructive things to himself. He's conducting himself in ways where it's self-destructive behavior, harming himself. We read as well in Mark chapter 9, verse 22, of a young boy under the influence, again, of a demonic spirit. And it said that young boy being prompted by this demon kept throwing himself into the water and the fire, trying to basically destroy his life, self-destructive. Again, The devil and demonic forces instigate and influence self-destructive ideas and feelings in people's hearts and minds. And let me reason this out with you logically for a moment, even if the spiritual doesn't make sense. Consider it this way. Self-destructive ideas, do they not, run contrary really to human nature. Self-destructive ideas run contrary to normal human nature. God is the author of life and gives us life, and every single one of us, as the result of that, has a very strong, we call it, will to survive. Or sometimes we call it a survival instinct, right? In such a way that if someone started attacking you... The capacity of you with your survival instinct to fight, to do everything you can if you're being attacked by an attacker, right? We hear these stories of incredible survival instinct where a small, weak woman, I mean, does incredible things to, in her survival instinct to stop an attacker from harm. Right? That's survival instinct. We hear stories of people stuck and stranded and their will to survive overcomes huge obstacles because there's something ingrained in our being where the survival instinct is so strong. It's just ingrained in us, right? We understand that. So therefore, in light of that, when someone thinks or is willing to do something contrary to their survival instinct, that's very abnormal to human will. That's very, very abnormal. And the reason it's so abnormal is we cannot disregard, despite all the other symptomatic issues that contribute and trigger towards suicidal tendencies, the underlying inspiration of such suicidal thoughts is spiritual. It is spiritual. It it is a spiritual being, the devil in his lying voice who is manipulating by planting thoughts and ideas in wounded and vulnerable people, that cause wrong and suicidal tendencies, encouraging them to act upon such things. If I could illustrate it this way if in a battle you're taking enemy fire, or if you're a police officer and you're taking you know fire, one of the most important things right away, if you're taking enemy fire, is to find out where's the fire originating from, so that you stay safe and so that you can overcome and survive in the situation. Well, look, let me apply that to our personal lives. We need to recognize as people the origin of suicidal thoughts is not our own ideas. It's not coming from our own ideas. The thoughts may be resonating in our own heads or the feelings within our own soul, but the origin of those suicidal thoughts are basically just landmines planted there by a devil who wants to destroy our lives. It's an enemy firing his arrows, his spiritual crossfire, to try and manipulate human emotion and pain and weakness to do what he can to suggest that ending one's own life is the best way to take care of pain and problems. And so in light of that, please hear me, to act on suicidal tendencies is basically to act upon thoughts that are not your own and they are not God's, but it's obeying the lying voice of the devil who just wants to destroy your life. And to do such is basically to follow the wrong ideas of somebody who's lying to you. That's lying to you. And is telling you lies because he wants to just destroy your life. You're not acting on your own thoughts. You're acting on the lies of someone else encouraging you to cause self-harm. Well, thirdly and finally, let's talk about a right response to such. And the right response is receiving help that's available from God and from others. Receiving help that's available from God and others. Turn with me finally, if you would, to Mark chapter 14 as we talk about this third thing before we wrap up together. Mark chapter 14, the Gospel of Mark 14. And here we see the example of Jesus as a man in a very hard, probably the most difficult hour of his life. And how did he respond? to overcome what he was dealing with. Mark 14, if you draw your attention to verse 32, we see how Jesus, living as a man, handled the hardest and darkest hours of his life. Verse 32 of Mark 14 says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And then he went a little further and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Let me make two simple observations from what we see Jesus doing here as a man handling the darkest and hardest hours of his life. The first thing that's evident there is Jesus surrounded himself with the company of other people who he loved and who he knew loved him. He said to his disciples, my soul was overwhelmed, please sit here with me. Sit here with me. It's the only time Jesus ever asked his disciples to do anything. And it's when he's navigating in his humanity the hardest hours of his life, mentally, emotionally, the anguish. And he says, please, I I just don't want to be alone right now. Sit here with me. And Jesus asked for people around him to just be there to support him, to offer communication and relationship with him. And the other thing Jesus did is he sought the Father in heaven's help in a way deeper than he probably ever had before. It says he went and just fell on the ground and started pouring out his heart to God and telling God how he felt and expressing to his father what was going on and saying, I can't do this, but all things are possible with you, Father. And I ask, please take this away, but if not, Father, I just submit myself to you, not my will, but your will be done. Again, remember, God is the giver of life and he gives you and I life. In the same way Jesus handled that situation, I want to say that's great wisdom for us. In the hardest hours, there's two very important, helpful things to do. Don't isolate. Surround yourself with people. Tell people, I don't want to be alone. I need you by my side in this time. And and communicate and utilize the benefit of human beings who understand struggle because we all go through struggle. And cry out to God. And be raw and real with God in ways like you never had before and give him a chance to show you how real he is, how loving he is, and how much he's capable to help and that you're alive for a reason. Because despite what you may ever think about yourself or others may have given you the impression of, from God's perspective, your life has tremendous value, great value. You're very precious and important to the Lord he created you specifically Psalm 139 says God knit you together in your mother's womb and you are fearfully and wonderfully made it says all the days of your life were written in God's book before one ever came to be God's got the whole record and we live out life kind of just one page at a time but God knows what's on the page tomorrow and he even knows what the next chapter is and He even knows what the ending is and it's a really good ending if you let God bring it to the ending it's a good ending And God's put value on our life. But with the authority of God to give us life, let's be realistic here, if God has the authority to give us life, then only God alone should have the authority to determine who can bring an end to life that he alone can give. Only God has that authority. Important that we always respect that. In the same way we know in our conscience as human beings, right, that it's wrong and and incorrect to kill another person because we're taking a life that doesn't belong to us? Well, in the same way, we need to realize it's wrong to commit the mistake of self murder, to end our own life. In the same way, it's wrong to end someone else's life. It's wrong to usurp authority that doesn't belong to us to put an end to our own life by choosing to kill ourselves. That's not our right. It's the right of our Creator who's given us life and to be the one to determine when our life would come. To an end, it's never good. It's utterly selfish. And honestly, to end a life that God's created, listen, it never solves problems. It does not solve problems. Let me tell you, having been with people many, many times over the years, it does not solve problems. When you end a life of your own, it horribly punishes everyone that's connected to you. Because the grief of losing a loved one through cancer or an auto accident or natural causes, that grief is hard enough. But when somebody commits suicide and chooses to die for their loved ones, they throw extra pain and punishment on top of them. Now they're dealing with confusion. Now they're dealing with anger. Why would you do this to us? Now they find themselves dealing with tremendous guilt. What did we do wrong that we failed that? You decided to end your life. Suffering is not necessarily always a bad thing either, right? Suffering is some of the ways we learn character as people. That's how we develop compassion for other people. Suffering is not always a negative thing. The biggest question that we have to ask is this. What does it really mean to exist as a human being? Why do I exist? Is it just to avoid all suffering and have comfort and pleasure my whole life? Why do I really exist? And if a satisfactory answer to that isn't found, it's very understandable why somebody would become discouraged and want to just put an end to their own life. Because if you don't find a satisfactory reason for existence, you start to think, well, then why should I exist? Life's hard, I have no purpose, and you start to lose heart. Well, the Bible tells us there is a reason for existence, it's relationship with our Creator. Acts chapter 16 a man there who's contemplating suicide discovered there was a much better solution. As he was ready to end his own life, Paul called out to him and he said, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And then he comes in, he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and all of your household. In other words, you find this man in the midst of his own personal suffering, realizing the solution is the realization that living for myself is not enough of a reason to keep living. And he says to Paul, how can I be saved from my personal misery and find fulfillment and meaning? Because he just watched Paul in prison singing. And he's thinking, where do you get that from? How do you be suffering, miserable, and still find a reason to go on and even have a level of joy and peace? And Paul says, it doesn't come from living from yourself. It comes from asking someone to save you from yourself. And from all the struggles and the hardships and the difficulties and finding meaning in not living for yourself, but actually living for someone else, living for Jesus, who can take away guilt and regret and pain and rejection and fear and depression and loneliness, and he can replace it with his joy and peace and his love and his presence and hope. He can supply a higher reason to live, and that's what this is all about. It's a higher reason to live. See... If you and I are just living for ourselves alone, it's tempting sometimes to not want to keep living. Because sometimes if we're just living for ourselves, depending upon what happens in our life or goes on, we may genuinely think there's not much to live for. I don't have anything to live for. But the Bible says for me to live is Christ. See, maybe you would say, I don't have anything to live for. Maybe the problem is is you're trying to find something to live for in your own life. The Bible says there is something to live for. Don't live for yourself. Live for someone else. Live for Christ. Live for Jesus. He has a purpose and a plan for you. He has a loving relationship for you. He has peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and purposes and things that he wants to do in your life. So it's that higher motivation that helps. And so the correct struggle Response to dealing with these kind of hardships is not necessarily ending one's life. It's fully surrendering one's life over to your Creator and to Jesus your Lord and saying, Lord, I may not have any reason to live, but I could live for you. I could live for you. And Jesus is willing to love and empower and help us in the midst of that. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and that more abundantly. God's words were this God says, Choose life. Don't choose death. Choose life. See, God has given us all the power to overcome, it's in the power of choice. It's in the power of choice. That we can choose, and it's our power to do such, to choose life. But to choose the life that God has for you. Because that has fulfillment. That has purpose. And that has a hope and a good ending. Choose the life that God has for you. Let me read to you Paul's words to the Romans as we conclude. Just listen to it. Paul says this. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me?